so we are live now hello everyone my name is uh, vikas agarwal and i am the founder of aif and pms fixers india so aif is your alternate investment funds and pms is nothing but portfolio management services so we are here to launch marsless global compounder fund today and uh, uh, you know we've been doing a series of webinars with marsless where initially we had a launch of ccp which is consistent compounder uh, which is more into large and multi cap space then we had uh, rising giant uh, uh, launch meet which is more into mid caps then we had a little champ uh, which is more into small cap and we also talked about banking and financial uh, products which is uh, kings of capital now this time uh, marsless has come out with its global offering uh, which is called global compounders well uh, what we going to do is we going to hear from arindam uh, uh, more about uh, you know this product uh, how are they going to run whether they apply the same philosophy and methodology of selecting stocks or it is uh, something different so we going to talk about that the total duration of of the call is uh, 60 minutes out of which we'll have 45 minutes of of presentation and then we'll keep the forum open for an answer maybe in last 10 to 15 minutes time uh, so this is uh, under the pms platform global compounders uh, and uh, uh, there is a minimum threshold which is defined by marsless that how much they will take uh, so we going to talk about that in detail in some time so let me introduce arindam arindam mandal is uh, is the portfolio manager uh, he is joined uh, marsless in 2022 uh, almost uh, quite some time now and uh, he's got more than 10 years of experience working with a us based firm called principal global investors where which is which manages close to more than 100 billion dollars so he's got about 10 years of rich experience on the sales side of of equities he's got about overall 15 years of experience so he's an engineer from nit warangal and he's also received uh, honors of finance in mba from duke university Uh, so uh, here it is. So what we're gonna do is um, we'll start the presentation and then we'll have the question and answer. So Arindam, thank you so much uh, for accepting our request and agree to do this for our investors. Uh, great, yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you, Vikasji, for uh, for letting us present here. Um, so so I just want, yeah. So over to you. So idea is that, that these investors would wish to know more about. Um, yeah. Firstly, why this product? A, yeah. uh, why did you launch this? And B, uh, how are you going to manage it? These are the two, three things. Uh, if you can just take us through, and then over to you. If you want to go right. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, okay, right. great, great. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, very right questions, uh, Vikas ji. I mean, thanks for the introduction. So, um, yeah, let us let us start doing this. I mean. Um, why did we think about this product right that's the first thing now um, as you mentioned i mean i i was working at principal i for last decade or so i started my journey uh, as an uh, us industrial analyst and eventually i went through the ranks and even you know by 2019 i was looking at the emerging market strategies for for our firm and that is when uh, sorov and i kind of connected for the first time i mean that time also they were in ambit they're just about to start marcelus um always like the you know like him and his team so um by end of 2021 uh, 
uh, when I was doing emerging market, I kind of had a chance to talk to a lot of uh, Indian Asian eyes at that point of time. And it was kind of quite evident to me that as a group, I mean, Indian Asian eyes are, you know, under invested in um, assets outside of India. Now, why is it important? Uh, of course, I mean, we, we like India. We are very bullish about India. Uh, in, in fact, in my Arstel firm, we used to do everything that we can, you know, uh, make our allocation higher for India. So it was an emerging market strategy. So there are you know, certain limitations, but you always made sure that the individual allocation is the highest possible. Having said that, uh, there are a few things, you know, that came to our notice. I mean, it's a known fact that the U.S. market, if we take the 10 year or 30 years of history, I'll just go to the next slide. Um, you go through 10 year, 20 year, 30 years of history, the TSR column that you see here, there's a total shareholder return and in US dollar terms. And this is basically a list of 15 largest equity markets across the world. Now, India does pretty well, as you can see here. In fact, in 20 year, it is number one. But take 10 year, 30 year, US is actually a great market to be in. So in longer term, you know, there is a very good case for uh, diversification of your assets. And what is the, you know, the other good part of the return that you get from US is um, it is uh, the volatility is much lower compared to any other markets, given the higher liquidity. That is number one. And number two is uh, the correlation between US and India, uh, you know, the stock market return is fairly low. Uh, it is around say 40% if you look at 30 year time frame, it is around 50. If you look at 20 year, 22 year time frame. So it is around 50%. And if, as you know, like, you know, generally within any equity markets, like the developed market, you see 75 to 80% correlation at minimum. So 50% is a quite low correlation. What it means is that there is a good case for diversification. So you get better returns, risk, uh, risk adjusted return, because you know, the sharp ratio is higher. At the same time, there is a possibility of diversifying your portfolio. So those are the, you know, the logical construct when, um, you know, when we thought about, uh, you know, why not thinking up, think about such product. Um, so when you started doing, uh, when you, when you thought about going ahead with this, there's another aspect that came to our mind that, you know, like more and more Indians, especially the wealthy Indians, they're building quite a bit of potential liability in US dollar. I mean, most of our kids are going outside to study, right? So there is a need for building assets in US dollar asset, you know, US dollar denominated currency. Um, so, you know, if you, if, if you think about it, like if you are going for a foreign trip, if you're going for your child's education, etc., if you have the, some, something in dollar available to you at that point of time, you don't have to worry about the typical dollar depreciation, like the INR depreciation that you see over time. And of course, I mean, there is a, uh, chance that there's a, always a higher countries when you are when you're in an emerging market so you don't have to take those right so the, it gives you number one diversification benefit and number two uh, build asset in usd uh, kind of dominate nominated uh, denominated uh, asset base so those are the two crux of it and eventually you know when sort of and i uh, met again in 2021 we we kind of thought about uh, building the same thing, uh, you know, what Marcellus does for other products. In fact, Saurabh told me that there have been many investors reaching out to them that why don't you try doing the something similar, you know, take the broad construct of building a quality portfolio and run it on global stocks. How 
you know they can also do as good as the domestic uh, uh, portfolios do and so basically when we when we discussed about the idea we thought that okay this is a time to do that now thankfully um, you know uh, jaybir singh sethi who is the other guy who is the head of research for for this product he used to uh, work for uh <coughs> premji invest so basically he was uh, compounding mr rajim premji's money uh he spent he spent almost 10 years there and before that he used to work with uh, saurav rakshit uh, pramod with them in clear capital long back in uk covering uk stocks so when he when he pitched the idea to jb jb was you know he readily agreed and we formed a team that was early 2022 now all the stocks that we see here uh both jb and i have covered them for more than more than a decade in in some capacity right? jaybir is uh, part of i mean you are part of the same team like he yeah yeah absolutely he read the research part yes and i'm doing the fund management part. yes absolutely okay. yeah so the stocks that you see as i said you know like we, the stocks we have covered more than 10 years in some capacity i mean jaybir used to do india as well as global tech uh, that was a big part of you know mr premji's portfolio as you can imagine so um so that is how the team was formed right now it is a, a five member team and we are still growing uh, mayank came from krizel uh, he had almost 5 plus years of experience in doing international small cap equities and akshay joined us from elent iifl uh, minali uh, she was an internal transfer she was doing domestic equities reduction before she joined our team so that is the broad construct of the team now uh, talking about the one more point so while yeah. Uh, Marcellus and team they were focusing on domestic equities and promoting their other offerings side by side they were also working on this idea for quite some time now in fact i remember sora mentioning that they were working on some global offerings two years back so this yeah. idea was going on in their mind they were they were doing their own research and now for the first time they're launching the product right yeah so i would say that idea was there as i said it was a genesis of you know people asking them to do something similar for global stocks but i think what they were lacking of course the bandwidth was not, not there given that you know uh, the domestic team operates pretty like in a silo right so they didn't have the bandwidth to do the, do these things and um, it was like finding i think the right team and right people who have experience in doing that rather than taking the existing uh, teams you know increase their workload because that will be a newer thing for them for most of them so that is where i think uh, that was the bottleneck so there was a thought process that we should do something like that but i think uh, the team building that that part we did early 2022 it is a very decentralized in that sense you know like uh, we every, every team in ccp lcp yeah. rg or gcp they are very decentralized they operate on their own right yeah. um so yeah that is uh, that is the formation of the team now the crux of the product is very similar to what you here in ccp so what you are doing here is that uh, you are doing you are just selecting deeply moated 25 to 30 companies global franchises which are dominant in their respective niche so that is the crux of the product um so in that sense i would say you know the broad construct is very similar to what ccp etc does now of course i mean the filtering etc is to be done differently because we are looking at a different geography altogether or geographies altogether but um, if you think about it uh, what we try to do here we try to divide uh, our invest in investments in three broad groups the first group we call them pick and shovel 
which is around say 40 to 45 percent of the total portfolio and the second thing is called utility is around 30 to 35 percent of the portfolio and the rest is in consumption so what is peak and shovel uh, so peak and shovel uh, basically this terminology you know that uh, this kind of investment strategy it originated from um, 19th century 1840s there was a gold rush in california uh, so what happened is uh, you know like prospective miners they flocked to california to find gold right to dig gold um, as happens with every this kind of mining discovery very few could actually find gold mostly they didn't but irrespective of whether they found gold or not they had to buy the tools to dig mines so at the end of the day the guys the companies that are selling picks and shovels to these prospective miners they ended up making much more money compared to the miners the average miners themselves so that is the broad construct if you think about in an indian context um, paint companies for example paint industry is a classic example so if you are building a house you have to get it painted it doesn't really matter if it is a residential building or a commercial building um, you have to get it painted that is that is the that is the key thing that's the essential step and just think about it like asian paints alone makes more profit when compared against the combined total profit pool of listed real estate developers in the in, in india right so the basic you know characteristics of these companies are that they are uh, they typically address a very large industry so for example in this case uh, the real estate industry which say 40 year back was probably a 5000 to 6000 crore industry versus the paint industry by itself was just 200 300 crore now the hot money you know people with big capital they'll always look for this bigger part of the market that is the real estate market so you always find very high competition there as a result the guys who are doing this pick and shovel the smaller things they get a lot of time to build their moat over time and by the time people actually realize that how strong the paint business is asian paints kind of companies they've already fortified their moat so strongly that it's just hard to break in so you'll find quite a few of these companies in uh, in the portfolio. So ASML is a classic example of that. So ASML makes uh, extreme ultraviolet machines, which are used in lithography. Now, what is lithography? So lithography is the is an essential step in etching silicon wafers. So think about it as like a very sophisticated 3D printer. So you have this silicon wafer on top of which you have to print the uh, circuit, right? The circuit design. And with passing time, the circuits are getting more and more complex. For example, uh, this phone has the chip, which has almost 14 billion transistors in it. So it's a super complicated process and ASML's machine can do those. ASML has almost 85 to 90% market share in lithography. So just think about it. Any phone that you're using, if you're using, you know, if you're someone is viewing me in, in the laptop, the chips that goes into it, it's a very high likelihood that ASML machine has built those. So the good part of this kind of business is that, you know, like you don't have to worry about who is winning market share. If it is Lenovo, Dell or Mac who is winning market share or it is, you know, more iPhones are getting sold compared to an Android phone. You don't have to worry about those. The, the bit that you're taking here is that if the world is getting more and more smarter, if that is the case, there is a need of digitization. There is a need of you know, getting things smaller, uh, you know, kind of packing things more and more things in a kind of smaller space. If that is the case, the companies like ASML 
who enjoys a kind of significant monopoly, quasi-monopoly in this space, they tend to win over longer term. Just to give you another example, I mean, how important this company is. So you might have heard like US China, you know, that uh, like they are trying to, of course, trying to tighten the news. US is trying to tighten the news around China. The first thing, the first thing that US did uh, just to take, you know, just to get China under control, they said ASML, which is a Dutch company, by the way, they said uh, ASML that you cannot sell your things to China. You cannot sell the EUV machines to China. So that is the importance of ASML in global supply chain. So that was a few months back. Last week, uh, there was a news that they've actually even asked ASML now to sell their older versions of the machines to China. So that is the that is the importance of ASML in, in global semiconductor supply chain. You know, so... Uh, you know, like, uh, and the way they have protected their moat, I'll talk about the moat part a little bit later. But the point here is that this kind of companies tend to win irrespective of uh, who is winning the market share in the end market standpoint. So that is that's the first category, pick and shovel. I mean, happy to take any other company example if you want, but let me move into the second one. So that is, uh, we call them utility. Now the name utility kind of, you know, gives the notion that, okay, we are talking about companies which are very boring, regulated, you know, electricity, water, gas, those are the typical utilities, right? But here we are not talking about those kind of companies. We are talking about companies which are emerging as utilities for a certain group of people or a certain businesses of certain businesses. Um, so intuitive surgical is a classic example of that. Intuitive makes surgical robots. Um, you know, the surgical robots are used like, if, if you think about robotic surgery, the soft tissue uh, tissue surgeries, you know, uh, that happens across the across the globe. 90% of the soft tissue surgeries that are done by a robot, Intuitive's Da Vinci machines makes, you know, they conduct those surgeries. So Intuitive has a 90% market share in all over robotic surgery space in soft tissue. Now, if you think about it, how, how did they build this kind of monopoly position, right? Quasi monopoly position. So this started long back in 1992. Uh, they started, they thought about doing heart surgery, but eventually that was not successful. By 1997, they got a patent to do urological surgery. So uh, they'd give them like around 20 years of, uh, you know, head time. And in this 20 years, Intuitive did few things which are actually remarkable. Number one, Intuitive installed their robots or the systems in every medical school in the US. What it what it meant is that every surgery student who wants to who wanted to practice robotic surgery, they have to try their hands on a Da Vinci machine. Now, post their graduation, whenever they join another hospital or they start their own you know, practice, they are so accustomed to using Intuitive's machine that they cannot think about using any other machine, right? So that is the first level of lockup that they did. The second level of lockup they did is they track the hand movement of every surgeon for every procedure they conduct. What it means is that if you're a 30 year old surgeon, Intuitive has started tracking your hand movement for every procedure, right? By the time you reach say 20, like 55, 60 years of old, like age, Intuitive has tracked all that 25, 30 years of hand movement for different procedures. Now, it's often you say that, you know, this surgeon was really good, but he has become old. Now his hand kind of shakes, it trembles. So you don't want to go to him. But what Intuitive does is 
if that is the kind of problem a surgeon is facing, it guides it to perform the surgery, like keeping the hand steady, etc., etc. Right? Because it has all the data stored in its cloud. So that is the second level of lock-in. So it basically elongates the career span of a surgeon. Now, when you have, you know, kind of created this fine mouse trap when the surgeons are hooked into your machines, the hospitals, despite the cost of an intuitive machine, which is around say 2 million or 15 crore, you will find that, you know, like the hospitals have to buy them because the surgeons are the profit center for any hospital, right? So again, that mousetrap is super strong. In fact, all the larger hospitals, even in India, you'll find that uh, they are using, using Da Vinci machines. In fact, if you go to, I, I saw that one ex, uh, kind of, you know, um, billboard in Mumbai airport talking about they are using Da Vinci machines in, uh, in Suhanso hospital. So that is the brand pool. It pulls, you know, the brand for the, it creates the brand for the surgeons for the hospitals. Uh, now this kind of the right now globally only 4% of the surgeries are done through robots. So you can just think about the potential opportunity uh, to, to make it even better. What intuitive did it did the third thing that is it installed its machines in the hospitals as well as the medical schools. Now for every robotic surgery that is being performed using those robots, you have to use intuitives consumables. What that means is that for every surgery, you have to use certain newer things like, you know, certain different things. Some of the things are just use and throw. So that is part of the razor blade model. Just think about it. You bought a razor and post that you buying the razor. You have to buy the blades many times. Similarly, you bought an intuitive system for every surgery. You have to use intuitive equipments right now. Intuitive derives around 70 to 80% of their revenue from the blade part of their business, which is the recurring part of that business. So again, those are the kind of utility companies that we have in our portfolio. They have been growing at 15% plus Kager over the last decades. So, um, and again, given the kind of solid positions that they have in their respective market, we don't see any reason why they can't do it for next couple of decades or so, at least. Then the third group is uh, armies, like armies kind of companies, which are consumption. So the uh, consumption part in India is fairly well understood. I mean, you know, like the FMCG companies that we have in CCP. Uh, so in the Indian companies supply the daily necessities of the, of the Indian population. India is still a poor country, relative basis $3,000 per capita income. It can go to say 15,000. But uh, the thing is that the consumption that you're talking about in global uh, compounder portfolio GCP are the companies like uh, armies, which, which uh, kind of, you know, uh, suffice the needs of the ultra reach of the world. So as you might know, you know, the world is getting kind of more and more polarized, the reach are getting richer. In fact, we saw a data point from Credit Suisse that uh, the number of millionaires are growing at around six to 8% clip. Take any 10 year, 15 year, 20 year time period. That is the growth rate of millionaires, number of millionaires. And if you compare that with population growth, which is around one to 2% globally, so you can think about the power of, you know, the reach getting richer and how fast it is growing. Now, what is more interesting is that there are just very few companies which actually control, which actually can supply the needs of this super reach. And Armis is one of those. So Armis is basically a virtual monopoly in, in the categories where they make the most money from. So they uh, make those women's handbags and some of them actually cost around two to three crores. Uh, 
In fact, I mean, there are a couple of uh, stores in India. One is in Chanakapuri in Delhi and another is in Kalaghora in Mumbai. I mean, it is, it is remarkable. You, you, anyone should actually go and visit them. It is incredible how they have built the scarcity value of a brand. So you, if you go there, you, you know, you just cannot go in there with money and buy things. You have to actually build, you have to give a loyalty test. So you have to start buying things like scarf, handkerchief, etc., etc., just to make sure that you are loyal to them. And once you prove your loyalty, Hermes will probably reach out to you via email that, you know, we have three bags for you. Uh, you know, do you want to see? If, if you want, you can give you one of those. You reach there, you might not like any of those because of the color. But if you don't buy any of those, your loyalty score will actually go down. And it might end up that, you know, you might end up never getting the bag you want, right? So that is the kind of scarcity that armies continues to create. In fact, um, the bag that, you know, the Barkin bag, which is their flagship bag, uh, it was actually conceptualized in the 1960s when Grace Kelly, uh, she was an uh, American actor, actress, she kind of conceptualized this bag. And that bag is now sold at around $20 million in secondary market. So the point being here is that the Armis bags are not just bags. In used market, they compound at around 10 to 12% Kager, US dollar Kager. So they are basically an asset class. And as a result, every year, Armis new products get a price escalation of in that range. So Armis has been compounding its earnings for last century at around 15% plus clip. And given, you know, the what, the way we see the world moving, I mean, there is no real reason that armies kind of companies cannot do it for next 25 to 50 years. So those are the basic kind of companies that we have in our portfolio. I mean, we just talked about three. We have around 20, 29 companies here. But um, now, one thing I'd mentioned is that uh, the moat part is also very, very important. And the modes that we, the, the way we look at modes, they are very process driven. The process, the, the reason it is process driven because the process is always repetitive, right? So when you think about, we spoke about ASML, right? So ASML's product is of course, super complicated to make. They have 150,000 parts. Um, so they have like 50,000 of those parts are just exclusive to ASML. So, the complication is so high that it takes actually around, you know, four aeroplanes to just take the machine to a desired location. Whatever, I mean, so the point being here is that the R&D part is, of course, very, very important for a company like ASML. But what is what we think is the bigger part of the moat is they lock their suppliers. So, for example, ASML's equipment needs a very, very sophisticated optics part. You know, the lenses are like super, super uh, kind of specialized. And there's only one company in the world that makes them. The company is called Jace. You might have heard, of, heard about them. I mean, they make even the uh, regular glasses. So Jace make those uh, lenses for ASML. And ASML has bought a equity stake in Jace. What that necessarily means is that ASML has virtually locked Jace from supplying it to anyone else in the world. So even if a Chinese company think about, you know, cracking the technology, but it will be so hard for them to get the supplier part sorted that ASML will have, you know, have another probably a decade leap in the technology side of it. So that is how, I mean, when you're looking at these companies, it's not just R&D cannot be a strength on its own because, you know, Silicon Valley, 
in US. I mean, the money is cheap. Millions of dollars are kind of put into R&D. But when you build this kind of additional mode, that kind of fortifies your mode for a longer time. Then the second group we call them as operational excellence. So this is pretty typical. You might you definitely see them quite a bit in the in Indian construct. So again, you can talk about Hermes. So the reason armies can maintain this scarcity because they control every part, every part of their value chain. So right from sourcing the leathers to the craftsman who actually is building that, uh, making that back for someone. And a bag is just make, made by one craftsman. So if some, some craftsman has been given an order, so that person is responsible for making the entire bag from starting to beginning, it takes six months. And then to the distribution, right? So distribution is also controlled by armies. What it means is that they maintain that scarcity value across the value chain. And that is important, right? You do not want to make something that is so special to be available to everyone. So that is operational excellence. And the third part is capital allocation. This is, I think, quite new. I mean, in Indian construct. Uh, so capital allocation is something that especially the US firms have excelled in over, over time. In fact, LVMH uh, is another great company in fashion in luxury brand. Uh, so you might be knowing that, you know, they have this lot of brands being put together. They call themselves house of brands. Now the LVMH founder, Bernard Reynold, I mean, he, he said clearly that he learned about capital allocation after moving to the US. Now we have few companies, quite a few companies, which are actually great in that. Berkshire Hathaway, you all know about it. Haiko is a classic example that, that we like. It is one of the topics that we have in our portfolio. So Haiko makes uh, generic spare parts for airplanes. Now, this is two very important aspects when you're making spare parts for airplanes. Number one, every airplane parts are regulated. So it has to be regulated by FAA. So it is not that, you know, anyone can sell a fastener or anything actually to an aeroplane. Number two, the maintenance schedule of these parts are mandated by FAA that after you fly certain hours or after you fly certain miles, you have to get those parts replaced. So you understand that, right? I mean, uh, you, it doesn't really matter if the airlines is not making money or anything, but as long as you want to fly, you have to pay companies like Heiko. Now Heiko has a monopoly in the parts that they make, the SKUs that they make. So that is that itself is a great business. Now, what Heiko did with the profit that generated from the core business is even remarkable. So they found out that similar kind of dynamic exists in the defense side of the businesses. So in the defense, there are four large players, but within those, you know, below that, in the subcomponent supplier level, there is huge fragmentation and there are similar characteristics of monopoly driven SKUs that Heiko can exploit. That's what Heiko did. I mean, they did 80 plus acquisitions over the last 30 years. Now the defense part of their business is around half of total profit. And Heiko kind of compounded at around 18, 20% over last 15, 20 years or 30 years. So broadly, when you think about the mode part, R&D, operational excellence and capital allocation, that is how we have constructed our portfolio companies. So uh, that is the company side of it. Then the second, then other, this is, I think, um, interesting that uh, when you think about investing in the US, it, the first thing that comes into our mind that will very take heavy, you know, we'll have 
all the fan mags, etc. But uh, I mean, this is not the case with GCP. In fact, the average age of the companies that we have in GCP, that is around 60 years. The youngest company is actually 27 years. Uh, so we are kind of trying to identify a little bit boring kind of companies, but have very good predictability, again, run by excellent managers. Um, and as a result, the, the tech exposure is generally around 15 to 25% through cycle. It is not what you intended to do, but uh, it is something as a function of, you know, the way the stock selection happened because the characteristics we're looking for that the firm should be uh, cash generative for a long, long time, should have a long history. Uh, hence, you know, that is how it panned out. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we are kind of uh, compromising on the growth aspect of the business. So, for example, the average companies that we have in GCP, they have compounded their free cash flow per share at around 20% plus, EPS at 18%. Um, if you compare that against S&P, that's around 6 to 7%. So, of course, I mean, the companies are compounding at much higher rate. Uh, and this, the number that you see with S&P, uh, that has been there for like last 60, 65 years. So, S&P compounds at around 7, 7.5%. And the nine and a half percent total return that you see for S&P in longer term, that is basically a function of that seven, seven and a half percent and two percent from dividend. So this construct, the S&P construct demands like that for has been like that for a long, long time. We don't think that is going to change, but our companies tend to do way better than uh, the compounding of that of S&P 500. Uh, I'll just really skip over those. Uh, yeah, Adindam, have you done any yeah. kind of back testing in terms of performance? Yeah, so I'll go there. So I'll just uh, address one thing, um, which is, I think, important because um, in terms of the research part, right, that is something you asked in the beginning. So our our total universe is around 1,100 to 1,200 stocks. Um, so we are looking at North America, large and uh, mid cap, plus developed Europe. Um, and the filters that we are doing, uh, they are basically built on the consistency of growth. When I say consistency, that should be through one or two business cycle and the consistency of returns again through one or two business cycle. The return part is a little bit different from what we do in the domestic portfolios because uh, in GCP, we are more concerned about the cash return potential of the company. So what you're looking at here is, um, the CFO to invested capital, EBITDA to invested capital, free cash flow to invested capital, things like that, and their consistency. So once we do that, um, once we do that, uh, we get you know around 100 to 120 stocks. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. So these yeah. 1100 companies that you are referring to, hmm. I mean, how many countries uh, you are looking at? So it is developed Europe plus North America. So North America means Canada plus US. And developed Europe, you can think about like, you know, Germany, France, Sweden, the Nordic center, Nordic and uh, UK. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we also ran this thing on Japan, but we didn't find anything. So nothing actually crossed, uh, you know, the kind of cleared our filters. <coughs> Sorry. So um, that is the first part. And then on top of that, what JB uh, created a very nice uh, forensic framework. And it is actually more bottom up because, you know, that we are kind of talking about stocks across different geographies. So 
the accounting rules are different across different geographies as well as some of the industries behave differently. So it's a very bottom-up driven forensic accounting approach that you created. Once you apply on top of that 100, 120, we get around 80 to 85 stocks that clear our filters. Then comes the second part, which I think is very important to understand, which is doing the bottom-up research on these stocks, right? In fact, that was our biggest concern when we thought about starting this product because what one thing we never wanted to compromise on is the quality of research, the primary research we are doing. So what we did in turn is that uh, we developed a very uh, solid source of expert networks. How we did that? I mean, there are several expert, expert network uh, providers across the globe. In fact, it has kind of, you know, grown significantly over last uh, five, six years. So what these export networks do is to, uh, you know, connect you to ex executives of different companies. So for example, uh, when you are doing work on ASML, um, so we wanted to talk to some, so we wanted to talk to some, ex, you know, ex-employees of ASML, some ex-employees of their suppliers or some ex-employees of TSMC, which is a big buyer from ASML, right? So the export networks actually connect us to these people. Of course, we pay them, pay pay them uh, quite heftily, but, but there's a possibility to connect them instead of visiting them in person. So what it, it, the way it helps us is that, you know, when you are making our travel schedules, it makes them much more effective because, because already you have talked to so many people about a company, then you know that what exactly you're looking for when you are visiting those company sites, right? And uh, thank, like, one thing uh, that is notable is that 70% of our businesses are B2B that we have in our portfolio. So having access to this large pool of ex executives is actually super helpful, as you can imagine. And we showed you the history of these companies on an average is 60 years. So there is really, really a large pool of people who are available. Now, what COVID did is that it took out the apprehension that people used to have, you know, communicating through Zoom, etc. So that actually eventually helped quite helped us quite a bit, you know, like they're more willing to talk to us and, you know, over the over phone or over Zoom. Uh, having said that, once we do those basic basic primary checks, we do visit the companies, their sites, uh, especially if it's a B2C company, we do, uh, you know, kind of visit their stores across the globe. Uh, many of the times our clients, existing clients, um, they might be working in some of those companies that you're looking into. So they help us connect to people. Or if you're visiting, you know, US or say France, you know, we kind of um, kind of help navigating those those countries in a nice way to research those companies. Uh, then the third party is portfolio construction. So the portfolio construction piece uh, is something that we built uh, in-house. <sighs> Yeah, so after that, I'll take your question on the backtesting part. And we also have a live portfolio, actually. So the this is the framework that we built uh, internally. So the basic construct behind that was because, uh, you know, the fundamental value of a company tends to come at a steady pace, right? That 15, 20%, whatever you, number you put in, there's the orange line that you can see here. But the market's perception of the company's valuation, that changes dramatically. Right. The fundamentals don't change that much, but people just, you know, overshoot or undershoot companies like, you know, based on their whims. So what we try to address is that if that is happening to one or two companies, it is, it is okay. But if that kind of dislocation is happening for a group of stocks or certain style of stocks, 
then we try to figure out you know if there is a way that we can just readjust the position sizing within our portfolio companies you're not buying or selling based on these signals but if there is a way to readjust our weights for our companies that you have in our portfolio you mean to say that the weightages of the portfolio may change depending yeah. on the situation of the market right yes so for example we we kind of divide our companies the 29 companies that you have for example now we divide in three subgroups the companies like armies that you spoke about so armies is like very continuous consistent growth you know their their customers are not privy to any market like it, it doesn't matter the rich people are going to buy those bags right if we are in a recession or not that is the case so that is the kind of companies we call them defensive growth on the other side of the spectrum we have companies like asml which are selling to semiconductor industry which by in you know in nature is super cyclical notoriously cyclical so those are cyclical growth and in between are the companies like the pure growth or secular growth like intuitive surgical so we kind of develop we kind of uh, segregated our companies in these three buckets now what you do is we run a quantitative model that is based on several style based factors like you know value growth momentum etc along with some macro based indicators which we get from from us and other developed markets which kind of helps us to identify that if there is a severe dislocation in the market in any particular style now if you look back in 60 years of snp's history that is available publicly there has been only i'd say only 12 or 13 instances where this kind of severe dislocations happened in recent times you can think about this 2002 2002 2002 that time frame when the growth stocks kind of went bonkers fundamentally disconnected with what their value should be similarly in 2021 we again saw another phase right that the growth stock went bonkers um in 2015 16 if you can recollect uh, there was a time that people are talking about that the oil is going to be under 40 dollar per barrel for rest of the life that didn't happen so that made the cyclical companies very cheap uh, the asml's kind of companies actually went become very cheap at that point of time so what the model does is find out this extreme dislocations and every 4 or 5 years it tries to identify those times and help us to reshape reposition our portfolio so for example if you see by end of 2021 the the uh, the talk tool actually was suggesting us to be positioned more defensively so what that was meaning is that buy more costcos or buy more armies or buy more box shares of the world don't get into much many growth stocks or don't get into super cyclicals at that point of time so that tool again is system driven on top of that we what we have done is we have defined valuation band for every companies so if a company is has overshoot that upper valuation band we tend to penalize them similarly if it has undershoots the uh, lower band we tend to uh, add positions uh, respectively but the talk tool especially is much more helpful to navigate this extremes in uh, extremes in the cycles now now to your point the original question that you are making so this is uh, this is a back test performance i would say so what we did is like we took the 29 companies and uh, just see how it has compounded over over last 7 uh, years uh, again it is very hard to do a objective objective fundamental back test for a fundamental driven portfolio right but still uh, this companies compounded if i just did equal weighted uh the compounded at this 22.22% but the 
the performance get boosted by around 3.7% when you apply the portfolio management tool on top of that, right? So that is the value add of the portfolio, like the uh, talk tool basically or the portfolio. Um, Latest performance of the backtesting. So this is as on 2022, right? It is the September 2022. The reason it will have till September 2022 because after that we went live with our own money. So this is the backtest and this is uh, since you went live in October. This is what it looks like. The blue bar is basically uh, the portfolio performance and the red bar is the S&P 500 net total return index performance. And it is still end of February actually. Yeah, end of Feb. <clears throat> yeah, so broadly, I mean, I think I gave an idea about the portfolio, how you look at stocks, what kind of stocks you have and the portfolio construction. Um, and yeah, we went live. That is pretty much it uh, on, the, on the research and the portfolio construction side of it. Um, broadly, you know, we are looking for uh, the uh, the portfolio should do around what we believe is doable is six to nine percent of uh, somewhere between that of alpha over S and P five hundred. That is the that is the goal that we have. Um, yeah, that is that is the broad construct because she uh, I can run you through the structure. Yeah, if you can just take us through structure quickly, then yeah. uh, we'll have quick Q and A. Yeah, sure. So. Um, Right now, in the in its PMS construct, uh, it will be hosted in the Gift City branch uh, that we have in Ahmedabad. So the Gift City, uh, you know, it is not regulated by uh, the SEBI; it is regulated by IFSC. Uh, the minimum investment amount is one fifty thousand, and it is not regulated by us. It is a Gift City regulation. That is the minimum amount of investment that you have to do if you want to invest in any PMS. Uh, and this will come through the LRS route for the resident Indians and the LRS limit is around 250,000 per year, as you might know. Now, uh, as of now, the tax collect collected uh, at source or TCS is around 5%. It will change to 20% from July 1st. And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to fast track the launch. I mean, we initially thought of building a nine month kind of track record and launching the product in June, July, that time frame. But with the announcement that FM made in February, we thought of uh, kind of, you know, if someone wants to actually take out their money, that if someone has any LRS quota left for the rest of the year, that is March 31st, then it might be a good opportunity for them to invest those. Um, then again, I said that the minimum amount in 150,000. Yes, so there are a couple of things to, to remember here that uh, this, uh, any foreign listed investments, uh, if even if you are doing it from your own account, uh, you know any any own uh, any broker through any broker, so they are considered as unlisted equities, even though if they are listed in foreign. So for those kind of stocks, you have the long term actually kicks in after 24 months, not after 12 months, and the uh, tax on the long term capital gain is 20%. There will be some indexation benefits on that. The indexation benefits comes around say 5%. Basically it is linked to CPI. But anything, any capital gain tax that is with, that comes within 24 months, that will be taxed at your marginal tax rate. 
Um, and on the other side, uh, you know, like uh, the, the last point is also very important. What you are saying is that if you're trying, if you're thinking about opening an account, go for a joint holding structure because <clears throat> the estate tax implications in US is actually quite penal. I mean, it is uh, for, for uh, international investors, I think it is around 35 to 40%. So if something wrong happens with, with the investor, uh, there is a significant uh, wealth tax that that uh, the investor might be privy to. So uh, that is the broad construct of it. And we definitely understand, you know, like this is the structure is uh, a little bit penal in that sense. Um, so, yeah, but uh, this is what we have for now. We are looking for, uh, you know, we are still not open for NRIs. So we are still working on that. That part of the, uh, of the puzzle should be there in next couple of months or so. And we are also uh, talking about or thinking about a structure, a fund-based structure, which which might be helpful for, uh, you know, to to take care of the inheritance tax part as well as the capital gain tax part, that that you can get it, uh, you know, resolved in the fund structure versus the current PMS structure. Okay. So the first question is, how many stocks do you have? Uh, right now, twenty-nine. Uh, we want to keep it below 20 below 30 so 20 to 30 is the target that we have okay. how many countries that i think we've already answered so yeah. to the developed countries we're not going to look at emerging countries at all no right? no 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 i think we already have the best emerging market in the world anyways so <laughs> there's <laughs> no reason for that okay and uh, how frequently you want to reshuffle the portfolio so uh, there are two parts to it. Uh, the stock-based churn, that will be very low. Uh, we plan to add or remove maximum two companies in a year unless something unusual happens. So that is around 7 to 8% of stock churn. But given the, the, the portfolio tool that I showed you, uh, that uh, introduces uh, around on an average in a four to five year basis on an average introduces around 18 to 20% chance. The overall annual churn of the portfolio would be around 25 to 30%. Okay. And uh, so taxation we've already covered. Uh, so these are direct stocks that you'll be buying on behalf of the investor in their DMAT accounts, right? Absolutely. So we'll be uh, pulling the money in the uh, in in gift. We have tie up with banks. And then uh, you'll be opening a DMAT account. We'll have the power of attorney. We have uh, tied up with interactive brokers. So interactive, you have an interactive broker account for you, which will uh, you can see your stocks. Basically, you'll be buying the stocks in your account. Yeah. So the framework that you talked about, does this framework also gives you sort of indication that these companies, like you talked about Harmis, etc., they are they are overvalued, and you should be reducing the allocation out there. Yeah, so that is where the talk tool comes in. Um, so we definitely, as I said, I mean, there are two steps to it. Uh, let me show. So there are two steps to it. One is the systematic way of doing it uh, that we do for our, for our uh, for the entire portfolio in that sense. And then there is, of course, we have the bands defined for uh, each of these stocks. Uh, so if they're kind of, you know, in our view, what, what the band should be. So you look at both the historical as well as the DCA based uh, band approach. So, you know, we, I mean, uh, both have their positives and negatives. And when you're combining both, we think that gives a reasonable uh, band assumption for each of the companies or the tolerance band assumption for each of the companies. Okay. 
okay and uh, so what what uh, so question is what sort of returns one should expect when they are deploying money yes so um, as i said like you know with the we are expecting around 6 uh, five, 6 6 at least 6 points of alpha uh, that is pre tax and pre fees 6 to 7 like 6 to 9 that is what we're talking about we did some math around the potential capital gain tax what can be more penal etc if i take out the fees so i would say uh, 3 to 4 points of alpha over snp's return that is what we're looking for in that case it will be say 9 plus three, three and a half, which is around 13% of USD return. Now we cannot really comment on the uh, currency part of it. Historically, if I take a 30 year history, uh, the currency has depreciated around three, three and a half percent. Now, yeah, three and a half. Yeah. But again, you cannot say that, you know, that is going to happen in next year or so, right? I mean, these are very volatile uh, kind of things. There can be extended period of time when the currency might move other ways, but overall broadly, we think the in, the difference in inflation would remain kind of in that three percent range in longer term. So if that is the case, uh, based on what the macroeconomic studies that you do, so the three percent depreciation should be a reasonable baseline case. Yeah. Have you done some kind of study on similar sort of products? How has been their performance? I mean, just as a study. Yeah. So uh, of course we. Uh, we have few good, uh, like we know quite a few good portfolio managers like Fondsmith is, for example, one of those. Uh, and we used to actually recommend Fondsmith and Lindsell Train uh, for many of our clients if someone wanted to invest in those. Um, again, I mean, very, uh, very well respected guys. Then nothing, you know, nothing against them. Um, the returns have been pretty good. I mean, quality wise return. One thing we believe we have done extra is this stock tool, which which they do not have. Um, and the second thing is that they're, uh, you know, they have become so big now that uh, they cannot invest in companies like, say, for example, Haiko, et cetera, which are, which are not small company, a 17, 18 billion market cap company. But given their fund sizes are very high, like say 25, 30 billion dollar, it is very hard for them to take position in some of the mid-size based bets that you have taken in our portfolio companies. Yeah. Particularly <laughs> Fundsmith has grown big time, like, uh particularly last three, four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, we we definitely have a lot of respect for Terry Smith. Uh, nothing nothing against him. Um, yeah. And in fact, I think we have known them, known him way before he started uh, Fondsmith. Uh, I think Saurav Rakshit used to cover his oil company uh, before he actually started Fondsmith. So, yeah. All right. So, Essentially, uh, the thought process is to identify these businesses with very strong modes. So the thought process is remain unchanged, which is like you're following the same philosophy of Marcellus, but uh, trying to identify companies globally, which can offer the similar sort of proposal. Right. Right. And uh, and on top of that, yes. Uh, on top of that, we are doing this talk tool, which we unfortunately couldn't apply to some of the domestic portfolios just because uh, the absence of high quality cyclicals that you see in Indian market. That is a challenge in globally. That is not a challenge. So you find ASML kind of companies and because of that, you can apply this kind of quantitative, uh, a little bit of more quantitative fund management tools. They come to us much handier. Right. Uh, last question. So are you also planning to come out with the fund structure 
because knowing the fact that the taxes are going to revise and some of the investors may have some concern over that uh yes we are we are working on that and um, we'll ask your our sales team to keep you updated on that i mean we definitely understand you know the the concern around uh, around the tax in fact when i go through that slide every time it kind of you know uh it kind of gives me that sense that you know this is actually quite penal in that sense but at the same time if there is an urgency to invest before 31st march do it otherwise you should you should wait for the fund structure yeah Okay, it was great uh, interacting with you, Arindam. Uh, great insights, so much to learn about global markets. When we are sitting in India, we only think domestic, but you know, one country full investment doesn't make sense. You have to have diversification, and when you are able to get these good moated businesses in one stop shop, why not? You should be giving mandate to Maxless. So great uh, interacting with you, Arindam. Anything that you want to add? before we conclude no um, i mean thanks for your time and it's good to see you hope to hope to do more, many of those in future but at the same i mean i just wanted to say that the diversification part you know that that angle is really important here in fact even in the us we used to tell our clients to diversify in international liquidities even though it is arguably the best you know uh, stock market so the the case for diversification is actually quite strong in india too um, I mean, we cannot put any number on that, but generally we'd say 20 to 30 percent of your equity portfolio. Uh, that is a good, good uh, number to put in global stocks. Right. I'm in sync with your thought process. So thank you. Thank you so much once again and look forward to meet you in Bombay. Sure. Thank you. Vikasji. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. If you have any Thanks. questions, please feel free to write to me at experts at AIPMS.com or you can visit our website aipms.com to know more about this product and if you want to meet Arindam, we'll kind of schedule your meeting with him. Thank you. Sure. See you. Thank you.